The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty, and today I'll be talking with Dawn Foster about religion and socialism. We'll be chatting about whether religious progressives and the broader left can find common cause in the fight against austerity. We'll also discuss liberation theology and the life of Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was assassinated during the Civil War in El Salvador. And finally, we'll consider the legacy of the so-called New Atheism. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, Blueberry, SoundCloud and all other good podcast applications. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Dawn Foster is a staff writer for Tribune magazine and Jacobin and also a Guardian columnist. She writes on politics, social affairs and economics Our conversation was centred on her recent article, Love Thy Neighbour, which you can find in the latest issue of Tribune magazine. So Marxism and and socialism more broadly is often depicted, especially by conservatives, as being sort of uh, militantly and, and intolerantly atheist. And obviously throughout modern history, leftists have found themselves in conflict with religious conservatism, uh, which uh, you know has obviously buttressed some of the, the most reprehensible regimes in, in, in history. Um, but, but nonetheless, and, and you point to this in your article, the Marxist tradition has always had a, a more nuanced position on religion than, than that kind of conservative caricature. And I suppose the example I always think of is 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 the way in which Marx's description of of religion um, as as the opium of the of the people is uh, you know a, a, a cliche. It's always very widely quoted. Um, but those uh, those preceding lines where religion is described as the sigh of the oppressed creature, the the heart of a heartless world, and so on, um, you know, typically those aren't aren't quoted. Could you say um, something just on your on your understanding of how figures such as such as Marx and Engels and also Karl Kautsky who, who you mentioned in your article, um, how they viewed religion and Christianity in particular? Um, I think it's, I think kind of broadly, I think part of the power of it comes from the fact that uh, religion, by its very necessity, always involves a community. So if you look at, you know, individualism, etc., um, I think one of the reasons why we're so atomized now is because we're very much separated out into small units, whereas when you look at kind of trade unionism and religion, then that's when you get people working together. It's when you get communities quite close together, uh, coming together to do the same sorts of things. You know, and that's not always just going to church on Sunday. There are lots of things outside of that. Um, but it's also about trying to create a better community and a better existence right now. And I think that you know, if you do feel pretty much alone in your workplace, in your home life, in your mm. spiritual life. There's very, very little you can 
you you can do to feel more empowered. Whereas if you feel as if there is a you know as if there is a kind of structure that can enable you to work together for a better now, then that can be very very helpful. So, I mean, obviously, there's there's a question of there, there are progressive people who are religious and there are conservative people who mm. are religious, and I imagine a conservative. Uh, Christians say would also believe that they're in the in the in the project of of, of fostering uh, community as well. Often, typically, you know, centered around the family. But nonetheless, uh, they would probably object to the notion that they themselves are engaged in a process of of uh, encouraging individual individualization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you know when I, I think I think you're completely right. When you look at the family unit, um, that can be extremely isolating in many ways, especially the nuclear family. Um, and what often kind of left, you know, leftist versions of religion, particularly left left Christianity, does is try to build that wider community, but also look at helping like refugees and homeless people locally, which you know I, I know that my my church are very deeply engaged in. Um, often I try and read the media around the Christian right it's very very anti-immigration it's very very centered on nationalism um, rather than kind of looking outward and viewing people as equals um, and I think that sense of equality is really really key to the difference between conservatism and kind of progressivism I won't say liberalism mm. in in the kind of religious political sphere so everybody I know who is uh, socialist Catholic you know, Protestant, Christian, etc., um, and a lot of my kind of Muslim friends as well. Um, they're very, very centred on the fact that inequality is seen as as a kind of a sin and also um, a kind of crime a crime against humanity that we can do something about right now. Whereas, obviously, when it comes to the conservative religious right, often they see, uh, you know, often the argument goes that. Any, any suffering that you, that you go through now is you know, will be rectified in you know in heaven in the future etc. Mm. Um, whereas what a lot of the Catholic priests that I mentioned in the piece that, you know have said is that it's not enough to just stand by and watch suffering happen. You know if anybody doing that themselves is part of that suffering. So that's to me why you know so much of the Christian left is is so keyed into trade unionism, protest and activism and why so many kind of um religious groups have broken away to do a lot of left activism. So I mean what are the kind of activities that you think uh religious activists are doing that that perhaps left activists aren't doing and, and perhaps should be? Uh, I mean uh, you know secular activists I mean. I think that I mean, I, I, I will caveat it by saying that everything that I know that kind of Christian uh, leftists are doing, other activists are doing as well. Um, I think what they're particularly focused on is basically trying to improve material conditions for refugees and homeless people right now in the cities that they live in. And that's partly because they have access to um, buildings and community spaces that belong to the church. So they have the resources to actually open these spaces up, bring people in, use some of the money that, that, that the church has raised to, uh, to enable this to happen. And often when you look at community organising on the left, one of the big issues is that you need public space. So one thing, I think one of the reasons why I've seen a lot more people um, become more spiritual, go back to either organised religion or other forms of kind of, you know, like tarot, horoscopes, etc., is because we feel really atomised. And if you if you are a person who 
is on a very, very low income, especially if you're homeless or a refugee, and you want to spend time outside your home, it's almost impossible to do that without spending money. So when it comes to churches, when it comes to kind of community groups, any space that enables people to come together without having to spend money, without having to organize to go there with a friend for a set amount of time and outlay some cash is really, really valuable. I think that's why these these organizations work so well. So you've got Catholic workers um, in, you know, there's one in London, there's one in uh, Scotland. Uh, there are a lot of them that involve kind of either working on a farm um, and then feeding kind of the homeless and refugees with the food that you grow or taking donations and running these soup kitchens and, you know, giving people clothes, etc. And the reason it works is because you have a space that everybody is every, everybody is entitled to come into, uh, no questions asked, and just, you know, you are part of that community. And I think that because of how how much space we've lost, especially under austerity, how many community centres we've lost, how many youth clubs we've lost – a lot of these spaces are becoming more and more valuable and, you know, a lot busier in many respects. Obviously, a lot of uh, people in, in, in the mainstream churches, um, Church of England and so on, are engaged in, in, in some of the work you're describing. They're involved in, in, in charitable work of one form or another and do provide community spaces. Uh, where would you see a line, if at all, between a more sort of radical Christian position and a position which is just trying to sort of ameliorate the very worst effects of capitalism but not really go beyond it? I think one of the big difficulties is that a lot of people don't want to, um, you know, especially people in the clergy, don't want to alienate their congregation, etc. So, you know, for instance, I've been to a lot of uh, masses and heard very political sermons. Often people get complaints after them, but more often than that, people, you know, people go up to the priests and thank them for coming out and, and talking about, you know, austerity and talking about, mm. you know, why it's important to vote, etc., um, I think one of the issues as well is that still within, you know, Britain, if you look at the House of Lords, there are a number of spaces in the House of Lords that are for, um, you know, vicars, etc. But it's only in the Church of England. So at, at the moment, when you look at people who have decision making powers in the House of Lords, it's exclusively from in, in the Anglican Church. When if you look at breakdown of wit religions actually see people attending there are a lot of catholics there are a lot of sikhs a lot of muslims a lot of jewish people and because of kind of our bizarre history with religion in you know in especially england um you don't actually see any spaces for those people within uh the house of lords i mean obviously i think the house of lords should be abolished it's not being at the moment but if we can't abolish it it should in the meantime at least make small attempts to become more representative so i think that's one of the issues and there's a lot of worry from you know clergy about alienating people but a lot of people i know um who are religious are becoming a lot more outspoken about it while also being a lot more outspoken about their political views um so i know that you know for instance, like Stephen Saxby, who is standing in Westminster, is a Anglican uh, priest, and he's very outspoken both about his religious views but also his political views. And so, I think that I think that more people are kind of drawing the links and talking about the structural issues. I've seen more and more people talking out against austerity, including now kind of Justin Welby, um, and obviously kind of Pope Francis has talked a lot about inequality and climate change. 
So I think that, you know, obviously there's always a, this kind of nervousness amongst kind of senior figures that, that, that they don't fully want to alienate people who are more conservative. They realize people have a kind of, you know, divergent point of view. But at the end of the day, you can sometimes draw a line and say, actually, no, poverty is always bad. We should do these things to stop it. Climate change is the biggest threat facing the planet. We need to do some things to stop this now. You say in the article that the fight to prevent inequality, tearing apart the fabric of society, has always been a key component of the work of, of many Christians. And I suppose one sort of slight concern I sort of feel sometimes uh, in this area is that, you know, there's always been a sort of a strand of, of leftism, which has had a kind of uh, sort of sort of nostalgic tinge that almost wants to kind of put Humpty back together, um, sort of return to the situation of, of the post-war years in the UK, mm. for instance, which obviously in, in many ways that was, you know, in many respects a better situation in terms of, you know, levels of inequality and, and, and so on. But nonetheless, it was also, you know, a highly sort of patriarchal uh, system, socially very conservative. And I, I suppose I wonder if, I'm sure this isn't true in all cases, but I, I wonder the extent to which many religious people on the left who may, you know, very sincerely be, be um, concerned about inequality and, and about poverty may also on social issues be sort of almost irreducibly um, kind of conservative. And, I, you know, I think you see this a little bit with... Uh, the civil rights movement in the in the United States, where obviously there was a more radical strand to that, but at the same time, there were people who sort of almost objected to poverty, partly because it kind of prevented, um, say, say black men from from taking the role of of the of the male breadwinner and um, assuming sort of patriarchal authority to some extent. I mean, is, is that do you think that's something that we should be concerned with in terms of making alliances between the broader left and um, and and people from a a more sort of religious uh, background? I think that if you are going to make alliances um, on the broader left, it should be with the Christian left rather than, you know, the Christian movement as a whole. Mm. I mean, like looking at the civil rights movement, there were lots of priests and nuns who were very, very engaged in civil rights movement. Um, they got arrested a lot. Um, even, you know, even now in America, there are a lot of, um, a lot of nuns and a lot of priests who are still deliberately getting arrested in, as part of these protests. Um, so I, th I think you have to be very careful about who you make alliances with. Obviously, you aren't going to make alliances with the more conservative groups within Christianity, because that would be utterly pointless, same way that you wouldn't make alliances with the conservatives, you know, in in Parliament. There's absolutely, absolutely no use in doing that. But there will always be more radical, more left-wing strands, and it's relatively easy to come across them. Um, I mean, even even in London, you know, there, there are some very conservative churches and some very left-wing churches, and a lot of people will travel a long way to go to certain churches because they align with their kind of political beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I think it's I think it's a lot easier to find those groups, and you know, a lot of my friends in in the Labour Party and further left are Christians, they're practicing Christians, they have been all their lives. Um, and they are they're able to make alliances and find, you know, groups that are working for the same things that they are, but also, you know, from a political but also from a faith perspective. So I think that often, you know, especially kind of atheists on the left just view all Christians and all people within a, any faith group as a kind of homogenous blob with no kind of divergent views whatsoever. When, like any group, like anybody who has any shared interests, there will be a huge spectrum within that. And I think that the kind of Christian left has 
had had a quite big resurgence in the last few years. So, you know, for instance, uh, Christian Socialist Movement has been renamed Christians on the Left now, which I think is a terrible name change. But they've seen a big rise in membership. Um, the Labour Party have launched Catholics for Labour, and they're seeing a huge number of people come into every event they have, um, you know, in conference and outside conference, and start a mentoring scheme. So I think that there is a big resurgence of that on the left, and I think that. Part of it is realising that if you constantly assume that everybody on the left is an atheist, then you miss out a huge amount of constituents and you alienate a lot of people within a lot of constituencies. Um, and you kind of make people choose between two things that they see are deeply interlinked. Mm. So if you are left wing and you're of, of any faith background the likelihood is that you are going to be on the left of that group. So, you know, it's relatively easy to find people to make alliances with. On, on the question of, of a resurgence of religious groups, what, what do you think the situation is on the other side? Do you think that um, austerity has sort of opened the door to organised uh, conservative and, and seriously sort of right-wing uh, religious groups? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, Mark DeSpano at BuzzFeed just wrote this great article about the fact that... Um, so. If you look at the British Catholic Press, which is a thing that exists, uh, the two main papers are the Catholic Herald and the Tablet. Catholic Herald is more right-wing one. I write for the Tablet. The Catholic Herald recently launched in America, and the idea was that they would become equivalent to the Spectator in the US. And uh, Mark kind of dug around after me and a few friends found out a couple of things, and it turned out that they were getting advice from Steve Bannon. So Steve Bannon wanted the Catholic right in the US to kind of become a bigger part of uh, campaigning. He thought that they had a lot of money and he wanted them to become a targeted demographic. So I think that there is a big worry that a lot of a lot a lot of people on the on the Christian right aren't you know feel as if they aren't being listened to politically. And so there are attempts to kind of dredge that up and like bring back a resurgence in that. Um, and it's often, you know, being built up by the alt-right. The alt-right will often talk about their kind of Protestant Christian faith as a way of, of trying to play up their kind of wasp, wasp aesthetics, etc. Um, and that is being driven by a lot of people who actually aren't Christian at all, like Steve Bannon, because it's seen as a key kind of vote winner and it's seen as quite powerful and it's seen as um, a way to kind of change some of the narratives around it and often you know when I speak to a lot of people in Britain uh, the Catholics I speak to tend to be further to the left um, and traditionally you know if you look at the demographics Catholics traditionally have voted Labour same with the majority of the Muslim demographic and often it's the opposite in the US so I think obviously people are trying to capitalise on it over there I've seen it less over here mm. I've seen a couple of um, attempts by US far right groups to send people over here to try and drum up stuff especially around abortion it tends not to go very well uh, they tend to get kind of caught out shouted out and I think often people are very wary of groups coming over with foreign money and what exactly their uh, kind of aims and motives are just to go back to the article for a moment so 
you begin by talking about the Salvadoran Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was murdered by a right-wing death squad in, in 1980 mm. in the in the early stages of the um, the civil war in El Salvador. Could you just? I, I don't think he'll be known to everybody, and, and so I wonder if you could just say something about Romero's life and, and what you find inspiring about the stance that he took on on poverty in, in El Salvador, and any lessons you think uh, he, he might uh, off, offer us uh, in in the UK. Yeah, so he um, he started out, you know, he grew up in poverty, started out as a uh, relatively kind of standard priest. He was initially seen as quite a, as a big bureaucrat. So uh, mm. he, he, people called him a pen pusher. He didn't want to get involved in politics. Um, and so obviously during this period in South America, there was a big resurgence in liberation theology. Uh, liberation theology is built around the idea that, that you know, we have to f- focus on ending inequality and poverty and suffering in in the world that we live in now, rather than telling people that their suffering will be rewarded in another life. We have to look at structural issues. We have to fight against poverty and inequality. And anybody who stands by, anybody who lets this happen, anybody who doesn't kind of see it um, as part of their role to fight back against that is complicit. And initially, he, you know, kind of distanced himself from it. The Vatican were desperately trying to kind of clamp down on it, and it, it you know, and it experienced a huge amount of uh, popularity within South America because a huge number of people lived in poverty. They lived under despotism, and um, and the kind of class issues within South America was so big. Um, and then his friend was murdered by by the same death squad. There were several children in the car who witnessed it, and it kind of caused Ramiro to completely switch. At the time, he had a radio station that he broadcast from every Sunday. And instead of just giving, you know, straight sermons from the New Testament, etc., he started railing against politics, you know, railing, uh, naming people in government who he thought weren't acting properly, talking about the lack of democracy, talking about all of the problems that were affecting people's lives. And his masses became hugely popular. You know, the Vatican asked him to calm down because they were you know, uh, worried about the repercussions and as expected he was you know, murdered by a death squad because he was seen as so troublesome and the Vatican last year decided to canonize him um, the right of the Catholic Church have always fought against that they've always mm. seen any attempts to uh, canonize Oscar Romero for being martyred as an as an acceptance that everything that he did was for the good of the people and worried that it would kind of lend credence to liberation theology, uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. So, yeah, that's basically kind of it. And we focus it around a Christmas sermon he gave where he talks about the fact that it isn't just extreme poverty that causes harm, it's also extreme wealth. So he talks about the fact that if you are extremely poor, um, you know, the man who goes out every day and has to search for work may either find food to feed his children or he may find himself in prison. And similarly, the person with extreme wealth um, spends all of their time worrying about how to keep that wealth and how to accrue more wealth. And neither of those situations is remotely helpful for any kind of spiritual well-being or any kind of personal well-being um and i think that's completely true today if you look at people who are in food banks if i speak to people who are living in poverty um you know the amount of mental energy that poverty takes up is completely all-encompassing and when you look at you know billionaires who are having a great time recently i saw an article earlier that said that 
billionaires have never had a worse time in terms of public affairs. Um, billionaires, for instance, in, at, at the moment are going to New Zealand trying to find bunkers, etc. They have this. <laughs> honestly, honestly um, th- there's a great long read by Mark O'Connell about um, about billionaires going to New Zealand finding bunkers because they are terrified that the apocalypse will happen and they will be uh, targeted. So you know you have people who are in extreme poverty who can't think of anything except you know, worrying about money and people who have extraordinary amounts of wealth who are spending all their time worrying that it will be taken away from them or that they won't accrue more. And obviously the answer is to share it all out a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's um, on the point of, of you know, un- unhappy billionaires. I mean, there does seem to be some quite solid empirical data to back up that point now, doesn't there? I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Spirit Level book on, on inequality and, um, yeah. you know, it seemed to suggest that, you know, you're much better off being rich in Sweden than you are being rich in, in the UK or, or the United States. Just just go back to liberation theology. Um, I remember, I mean, it's years ago now when I read it, but I, I think it was either in a book or, or, or an interview he gave uh, where where Noam Chomsky basically said, you know, in the 1980s, the US government was was effectively at war with the cha- with the Catholic Church in Latin America. And, mm. and do you think that's that's um, accurate in terms of how how, how widespread and, and significant liberation theology was in the period in in, in Latin America? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big issue there, I mean, the reason why the US government was so scared of it was because if you do want to kind of bring down um, a government, then you need all the institutions on side. So if you look at Venezuela now, um, everybody is making overtures to the military to switch away from Maduro to the US, you know, etc. And one of the biggest institutions within a lot of these countries was the Catholic Church. So if the Catholic Church and the bishops and archbishops within those countries were constantly saying that poverty was the biggest crime um, and poverty was being perpetuated by the people in charge and the despots, then you weren't ever going to manage to stop any uprisings. So there was this you know, complete fear that if the Catholic Church were against you, that meant the poor were against you and the masses were against you. And, you know, you had this huge fear that they would turn around. And that's why so many people ended up being murdered. You know, you have Oscar Romero, there are six other Jesuits who were murdered in 1989 in El Salvador. And the number of people who were just like, killed and and the people who murdered them never found because they weren't meant to be found, because they were part of you know, various kind of government sanctioned death squads mm. is incalculable. And and, and killing uh, in, in a few cases American citizens as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a, a, there are so there are still so many crimes and people who haven't been brought to justice. Um, I mean, still nobody knows precisely who killed Oscar Romero. Um, he was killed during mass. Nobody, you know, there, there are ideas about who authoritatively said. You know, he he you know he should be murdered, but it still took a long time for people to fully get to the bottom of it. And same with same with with Rutilio Grande and a lot of the other kind of uh, Catholic bishops and uh, monks who were and nuns who were killed. One of the things you you talk about in the article is um, the the so called new atheism. And uh, I, I don't know if you saw it, but there was there was recently a pretty scathing review in the Guardian of a book called The Four Horsemen, which mm. um, is, a, is a transcript of a, of a conversation between uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Samuel Harris, uh, Daniel Derrick mm. Dennett and Christopher Hitchens, uh, which I was also amused to see has a foreword by Stephen Fry. 
Um, <laughs> what, what, what's your view of, of the of the, the so-called new atheism, and, and perhaps what was your view at the time? Because it, it seems like a, a far less, in, in many ways, a, a, a less significant thing than it than it did sort of at the height of the of the war on terror. Um, and also, how do you think the, um, the the position of the new atheists sort of differs from from socialist critiques of, of religion? Mm. Um, I think for me personally, the new atheism movement probably threw me back to the Catholic Church. I think, <laughs> I think and I don't think that's an unusual position. I think a lot of people I know have become a lot more interested in religion purely because they hated new atheism so much. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that it was extremely blokey. It was yeah. extremely racist, and it veered more and more towards the towards the right as things went on. If you look at, you know if you look at Richard Dawkins' Twitter feed now, it's just become a complete joke. I think there are a lot of older male intellectuals who should never have gotten Twitter. Um, and, it, <laughs> you know, and that, and that includes some transphobic comedy writers as well. There are a lot of people who should never have gotten Twitter because they previously had quite a good public image and constantly spewing their, their, their thought that, you know, every kind of brain wrong that they have into the public sphere has kind of, demystified anything there so I think that it started out as something that a lot of people found quite intellectually curious but both the people involved were very blokey they were increasingly racist kind of the whole Niall Ferguson angle uh, and you know Sam Harris became quite extreme but also the kind of people who um, got really into it were also kind of part of the skeptics movement etc and often there was almost no kind of real feeling that they wanted to engage with people it was just that they wanted to tell people they were wrong and in many ways a lot of the people I saw who were very very into it treated it as a kind of substitute for religion itself so um people went to kind of new atheist churches etc um and became you know very very deeply involved in it and a lot of people I know, especially women, became completely turned off by it. Um, loads of people I know just re- refuse to call themselves atheists now because they don't want to be associated with any of that whatsoever. Mm. And a lot of people I know just said they started looking more religion because the kind of uh, vitriol and uh, lack of nuance that they saw in the new atheist movement made them think, well, I'm sure there's a little bit more at play here than I'm being told about. In terms of the sort of non-engagement, I mean, there seems to be particular sort of non-engagement with uh, previous forms of, of uh, critiques of religion from from philosophers, and it it seemed to me that they had an incredibly sort of juvenile take on on religion. It was very much, you know, uh, the problem of evil one hundred and one. You know, it was mm. this sort of well, how can there be a god when these terrible things happen? It's like really, it just this just occurred to you, Sam Harris. <laughs> you know, it just seemed bizarre. Um, I had completely forgotten about the new atheist churches. Could could you could you remind uh, me and and everyone else what that was? Um, there was a weird movement to basically kind of get community centres or old churches and get people to go along on Sundays, and essentially give some kind of atheist sermon. And mm. one thing I found strange about it was that it didn't really acknowledge the fact that the reason they were doing that was because clearly the people going felt that they were missing something and that one of the, you know, I think that a lot of people thought it'd be fun, fun to do, fun to ape, you know, religion, but 
didn't at all think maybe there's a reason why people enjoy going to church on Sunday. Maybe people, you know, do it out of, you know, more than just obligation and fear that they'll be sent to hell. Maybe there is something about coming together. Maybe mm. there is something missing in my life that I might, you know, actually find within religion or, you know, I, I found it really strange that almost everything about new atheism seemed to be trying to ape a lot of, um, a lot of especially Christian uh, religion. And there wasn't any real acknowledgement of that or about the reasons why people might enjoy and continue to practice Christianity. Yeah, I suppose the difference being that instead of, you know, I don't know, Thomas Aquinas or someone, you have to make do with Sam Harris. Um <laughs> I mean, when this was all going on, because I mean, it, you know, it's it's sort of easy to forget now, but it was um, it was very dominant in the in the media for for a period of time, particularly in the in the pages of the, of the Guardian. I seem to remember. Um, uh, at the time, I was I was living in in South Korea, um, teaching English, and um, most of my co-workers were American American liberals, and and a lot of them were very sympathetic to the to the the, the, the new atheist position. Um, you know, at the time, I found it very frustrating. And I, I used to argue with them. But, you know, thinking back on it now, I, I sort of have a bit more sympathy for them than I did, I suppose, because I think, you know, it's, it's probably easy to do if you're if, if most of the kind of picture of, of America that you pick up is from is from uh, popular culture. Mm. Uh, it's really, you know, it's the East Coast and the West Coast that you're you're really seeing really. And and these were people who who had seen uh, religious uh, conservatism and fundamentalism up close in a way that I just had hadn't, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty yeah. secular bit of the country. Um, uh, my family weren't, weren't religious at all. Um, and I do sometimes wonder and obviously this doesn't apply to sort of left progressive people of a, of a, of a religious standpoint, um, but I do sometimes think that maybe there's a certain privilege that, that, that one gets th- from living in quite a sort of secular situation, which can sometimes translate into being a little bit too soft on religious conservatism. Um, I mean, I'm thinking in particular, there was that period in the early 2000s where some on the on the, on the left, and you know, I'd probably include myself in this to some extent, but... Um, took took a, a somewhat I think you know too favorable view of of groups such as Hamas and, and Hezbollah um, in, in in the Middle East and tended to look at them solely through the prism of anti-imperialism and and to not see that you know at the end of the day uh, these groups are also um, conservative religious groups who you know are not allies on the question of of, of, of gender and and, and, mm. and other matters sometimes I, I don't know what you think about about that um I mean, I I was still in kind of secondary school until 2006, so I'm not 100% sure of the history here. But I think that I think that one of the problems stems from a lack of understanding about religion. So often, when you look at some of these groups, if you understand, for instance, that Islamophobia is a big problem, then you won't necessarily interrogate a lot you know, the specific groups in question, you won't look any further because your understanding of Islam is so limited. Your understanding mm. of religion is very limited. So you kind of take things on red. And I think that is a big issue. Um, I'm sure it's a big issue with certain groups on the Christian uh, side as well. Um, and, you know, I know it's an issue with some kind of extremist Jew- uh, Jewish groups. So often kind of people on the left will say, ah, oh, well, I can't remember the name of them, but there is a very extremist you know, Jewish group that are very pro-Palestinian rights, but can be extremely problematic. And yeah, I think it stems from a lack of understanding about religion and also a fear that kind of any interrogation of it will be seen as um, 
quite problematic. And I mm. think that I suppose also, that would be particularly felt in that period, wouldn't it? Sort of at the height of the of the war on terror. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think that people feel a lot more comfortable kind of interrogating, um, you know, the, the Christian movements here mm. than they do some of the other. Um, religions because they have almost little, almost no understanding of it and that's you know almost exclusively white leftists i know who've grown up in quite kind of protestant backgrounds um they feel a lot happier you know taking to task christians as they should but and often what when when i speak to some of my kind of muslim and you know sikh and hindu friends as well they say that one of the big issues that comes out of this is that if they're kind of colleagues who are Christian are you know, quite open about their faith, people will interrogate them about this, say, well, how can you be Christian when this is and this kind of goes against your leftist beliefs? But will often they will often be quite patronised by people who assume that because they are you know, not white, because they've been brought up in a, in a Muslim background, that they have never personally interrogated their faith, that they have just gone along with what, what their upbringing said, what their parents you know, told them. Um, and just assume a complete lack of intellectual inquiry on on their part, um, and that's especially true from the Muslim women that I speak to and that I'm friends with. They say that they're often, uh, you know, subject to a double bind of sexism and racism, where people just assume that they have kind of uh, taken on their faith and continued with it purely because they are quite meek and they are, mm. you know, and they've never really bothered to interrogate their own. Uh, their own religion and their own upbringing and that they don't choose that they haven't looked at what mosques they go to they don't know anything about their imam etc um and i yeah, think I mean, there's almost that sense yeah. that if you're if you're a muslim woman you are de facto um oppressed right yeah absolutely and especially my friends who wear hijab say that you know the number of times they've been patronized by people on the left is um almost as often as they have been kind of racially abused by people mm. um and obviously the cumulative effect of you know, being patronised isn't as severe as kind of, you know, being treated differently and, you know, being subject to racist abuse. But it's a slight, it's a niggling thing that annoys them and it especially affects women. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.